Volume Two, Part Eight of Herodotus's Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Histories, Volume Two, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by E. D. Godley. Volume Two, Part Eight. Next to these Macliers are the Ossians. These and the Macliers, separated by the Triton, live on the shores of the Tritonian Lake. The Macliers wear their hair long behind, the Ossians in front. They celebrate a yearly festival of Athena, where their maidens are separated into two bands and fight each other with stones and sticks. Thus, they say, honouring in the way of their ancestors that native goddess whom we call Athena. Maidens who die of their wounds are called false virgins. Before the girls are set fighting, the whole people choose the fairest maid, and arm her with a Corinthian helmet and a Greek panoply, to be then mounted on a chariot and drawn all along the lake shore. With what armour they equipped their maidens before the Greeks came to live near them I cannot say, but I suppose the armour was Egyptian, for I maintain that the Greeks took their shield and helmet from Egypt. As for Athena, they say that she was daughter of Poseidon and the Tritonian lake, and that, being for some reason angry at her father, she gave herself to Zeus, who made her his own daughter. Such is their tale. The intercourse of men and women there is promiscuous. They do not cohabit, but have intercourse like cattle. When a woman's child is well grown, the men assemble within three months, and the child is adjudged to be that man's whom it is most like. I have now described all the nomadic Libyans who live on the coast. Farther inland than these is that Libyan country which is haunted by wild beasts, and beyond this wild beast haunt runs a ridge of sand that stretches from Thebes of Egypt to the pillars of Heracles. At intervals of about ten days' journey along this ridge, there are masses of great lumps of salt in hills. On the top of every hill a fountain of cold sweet water shoots up from the midst of the salt. Men live around it who are furthest away toward the desert and inland from the wild beast's country. The first on the journey from Thebes, ten days distant from there, are the Ammonians, who follow the worship of the Zeus of Thebes. For, as I have said before, the image of Zeus at Thebes has the head of a ram. They have another spring of water besides, which is warm at dawn, and colder at market-time, and very cold at noon. And it is then that they water their gardens. As the day declines, the coldness abates, until at sunset the water grows warm. It becomes ever hotter and hotter until midnight, and then it boils and bubbles, after midnight it becomes ever cooler until dawn. This spring is called the spring of the sun. At a distance of ten days' journey again from the Ammonians along the sandy ridge, there is a hill of salt like that of the Ammonians, and springs of water where men live. This place is called Aguila. It is to this that the Nasamonis come to gather palm-fruit. After ten days' journey again from Aguila there is yet another hill of salt, and springs of water, and many fruit-bearing palms, as at the other places, men live there called Garamantes, an exceedingly great nation, who sow in earth which they have laid on the salt. The shortest way to the lotus-eater's country is from there, thirty days' journey distant. Among the Garamantes are the cattle that go backward as they graze, the reason being that their horns curve forward. Therefore, not being able to go forward, since the horns would stick in the ground, they walk backward grazing. Otherwise they are like other cattle, except that their hide is thicker and harder to the touch. These Garamantes go in their four-horse chariots chasing the cave-dwelling Ethiopians, for the Ethiopian cave-dwellers are swifter afoot than any men of whom tales are brought to us. 
They live on snakes and lizards and such like creeping things. Their speech is like no other in the world. It is like the squeaking of bats. Another ten days' journey from the Garamantes there is again a salt hill and water, where men live called the Aturantes. These are the only men whom we know who have no names, for the whole people are called Aturantes, but no man has a name of his own. When the sun is high, they curse and very foully revile him, because his burning heat afflicts their people and their land. After another ten days' journey there is again a hill of salt, and water, and men living there. Near to this salt is a mountain called Atlas, whose shape is slender and conical, and it is said to be so high that its heights cannot be seen, for clouds are always on them winter and summer. The people of the country call it the Pillar of Heaven. These men get their name, which is Atlantes, from this mountain. It is said that they eat no living creature, and see no dreams in their sleep. I know and can tell the names of all the peoples that live on the ridge as far as the Atlantes, but no farther than that. But I know this, that the ridge reaches as far as the pillars of Heracles and beyond them. There is a mine of salt on it every ten days' journey, and men live there. Their houses are all built of blocks of the salt, for these are parts of Libya where no rain falls, for the walls, being of salt, could not stand firm if there were rain. The salt there is both white and purple. Beyond this ridge, the southern and inland parts of Libya are desolate and waterless. There are no wild beasts, no rain, no forests. This region is wholly without moisture. Thus from Egypt to the Tritonian lake, the Libyans are nomads that eat meat and drink milk. For the same reason as the Egyptians too profess, they will not touch the flesh of cows, and they rear no swine. The women of Cyrene, too, consider it wrong to eat cows' flesh, because of the Isis of Egypt, and they even honor her with fasts and festivals, and the Barkian women refuse to eat swine, too, as well as cows. Thus it is with this region. But west of the Tritonian lake the Libyans are not nomads. They do not follow the same customs, or treat their children as the nomads do. For the practice of many Libyan nomads, I cannot say absolutely whether it is the practice of all, is to take their children, when they are four years old, and to burn the veins of their scalps, or sometimes of their temples, with the grease of sheep's wool, so that the children may never afterward be afflicted by phlegm draining from the head. They say that this makes their children quite healthy. In fact, the Libyans are the healthiest of all men whom we know. Whether it is because of this practice I cannot absolutely say, but they certainly are healthy. When the children smart from the pain of the burning, the Libyans have found a remedy. They soothe them by applications of goat's urine. This is what the Libyans themselves say. The nomad's way of sacrificing is to cut a piece from the victim's ear for first fruits and throw it over the house. Then they wring the victim's neck. They sacrifice to no gods except the sun and moon. That is, this is the practice of the whole nation, but the dwellers by the Tritonian lake sacrifice to Athena chiefly, and next to Triton and Poseidon. It would seem that the robe and aegis of the images of Athena were copied by the Greeks from the Libyan women, for except that Libyan women dress in leather, and that the tassels of their goatskin cloaks are not snakes, but thongs of hide, in everything else their equipment is the same. And, in fact, the very name betrays that the attire of the statues of Pallas has come from Libya, for Libyan women wear the hairless tasseled agia over their dress, coloured with matter, and the Greeks have changed the name of these agi to their agitas. Furthermore, in my opinion, the ceremonial chant first originated in Libya, for the women of that country chant very tunefully. And it is from the Libyans that the Greeks have learned to drive four-horse chariots. 
The dead are buried by the nomads in Greek fashion, except by the Nasimones. They bury their dead sitting, being careful to make the dying man sit when he releases his spirit, and not die lying supine. Their dwellings are constructed of asphodel stalks twined about reeds. They can be carried here and there. Such are the Libyan customs. West of the Triton River and next to the Essians begins the country of Libyans who cultivate the soil and possess houses. They are called the Maxies. They wear their hair long on the right side of their heads and shave the left, and they paint their bodies with vermilion. These claim descent from the men who came from Troy. Their country, and the rest of the western part of Libya, is much fuller of wild beasts and more wooded than the country of the nomads. For the eastern region of Libya, which the nomads inhabit, is low-lying and sandy as far as the Triton River. But the land west of this, where the farmers live, is exceedingly mountainous and wooded and full of wild beasts. In that country are the huge snakes and the lions, and the elephants and bears and asps, the horned asses, the dog-headed and the headless men that have their eyes in their chests, as the Libyans say, and the wild men and women, besides many other creatures not fabulous. But in the nomads' country there are none of these, but there are others, white-rumped antelopes, gazelles, hartebeasts, asses, not the horned asses, but those that are called undrinking, for they never drink, the oryx, whose horns are made the horns of the lyre, this is a beast the size of a bull, foxes, hyenas, porcupines, wild rams, the dictes, jackals, panthers, the boris, land crocodiles, sixty inches long, very like lizards, and ostriches and little one-horned serpents, all these beasts besides those that are elsewhere too, except deer and wild boar. Of these two kinds there are none at all in Libya. There are in this country three kinds of mice, two-footed, the zagaris, this is a Libyan word, meaning in our language hills, and the bristly-haired, as they are called. There are also weasels found in the sophilum, very like to the weasels of Tartessus. So many are the wild creatures of the nomad's country, as far as by our utmost inquiry we have been able to learn. Next to the Maxis of Libya are the Zakis, whose women drive their chariots to war. Next to these are the Gazantes, where much honey is made by bees, and much more yet, so it is said, by craftsmen. It is certain that they all paint themselves with vermilion and eat apes, with which their mountains swarm. Off their coast, the Carthaginians say, lies an island called Cereus, twenty-five miles long and narrow across, accessible from the mainland. It is full of olives and vines. It is said that there is a lake on this island from which the maidens of the country draw gold dust out of the mud on feathers smeared with pitch. I do not know whether this is true. I just write what is said. But all things are possible, for I myself saw pitch drawn from the water of a pool in Zacanthus. The pools there are enormous. The greatest of them is seventy feet long and broad, and twelve feet deep. Into this they drop a pole with a myrtle branch fastened to its end, and bring up pitch on the myrtle, smelling like asphalt, and for the rest better than the pitch of Peria. Then they pour it into a pit that they have dug near the pool, and when a fair amount is collected there, they fill their vessels from the pit. Whatever falls into the pool is carried under the ground and appears again in the sea, which is about half a mile distant from the pool. So, then, the story that comes from the island lying off the Libyan coast is like the truth, too. Another story is told by the Carthaginians. There is a place in Libya, they say, where men live beyond the pillars of Heracles. They come here and unload their cargo. Then, having laid it in order along the beach, they go aboard their ships and light a smoking fire. 
The people of the country see the smoke, and coming to the sea, they lay down gold to pay for the cargo, and withdraw from the wares. Then the Carthaginians disembark and examine the gold. If it seems to them a fair price for their cargo, they take it and go away, but if not, they go back aboard and wait, and the people come back and add more gold until the sailors are satisfied. In this transaction, it is said, neither party defrauds the other. The Carthaginians do not touch the gold until it equals the value of their cargo, nor do the people touch the cargo until the sailors have taken the gold. These are all the Libyans whom we can name, and the majority of their kings cared nothing for the king of the Medes at the time of which I write, nor do they care for him now. I have this much further to say of this country. Four nations, and no more, as we know it, inhabited it two of which are aboriginal, and two not. The Libyans in the north and the Ethiopians in the south of Libya are aboriginal, the Phoenicians and Greeks are later settlers. In my opinion, there is in no part of Libya any great excellence for which it should be compared to Asia or Europe, except in the region which is called by the same name as its river, Sinops. But this region is a match for the most fertile farmland in the world, nor is it at all like the rest of Libya for the soil is black and well watered by springs, and has no fear of drought, nor is it harmed by drinking excessive showers. There is rain in this part of Libya. Its yield of grain is of the same measure as in the land of Babylon. The land inhabited by the Eusphirite is also good. It yields at the most a hundredfold, but the land of the Synapse region yields three hundredfold. The country of Cyrene, which is the highest part of Libya that nomads inhabit, has the marvellous advantage of three harvest seasons. The fruits of the earth are ripe for reaping and picking on the coast first. When these have been gathered, the middle region above the coast, which they call the hills, is ripe for gathering, and no sooner has this yield of the middle country been gathered than the highest-lying crops are mellow and ripe, so that the latest fruits of the earth are coming in when the earliest are already spent by way of food and drink. Thus the Cyrenians have a harvest lasting eight months. Enough of these matters, then. Now, when the Persians that Ariandes sent from Egypt to avenge Pharatime came to Bars, they laid siege to the city, demanding the surrender of those who were guilty of the murder of Arcesilaus. But the Barsaeans, those whose whole people were accessory to the deed, would not yield. The Persians besieged Bars for nine months, digging underground passages leading to the walls, and making violent assaults. As for the tunnels, a blacksmith discovered them by the means of a bronze shield, and this is how he found them. Carrying the shield around the inner side of the walls, he struck it against the ground of the city. All the other places which he struck returned a dull sound, but where there were tunnels the bronze of the shield rang clear. Here the Barsians made a counter-tunnel and killed those Persians who were digging underground. Thus the tunnels were discovered, and the assaults were repelled by the townsfolk. When much time had been spent, and many on both sides, not less of the Persians than their enemies, slain, Amasis, the general of the foot-shoulders, devised a plot, knowing that Bars would not be taken by force, but might be taken by guile. He dug by night a wide trench and laid frail planks across it, which he then covered over with a layer of earth level with the ground about it. Then when day came, he invited the Barsians to confer with him, and they readily consented. At last all agreed to conditions of peace. This was done thus. Standing on the hidden trench, they gave and accepted a sworn assurance that their treaty would hold good while the ground where they stood was unchanged. The Barsians promised to pay a due sum to the king, and the Persians to do the Barsians no harm. 
When the sworn agreement was made, the townsfolk, trusting in it and opening all their gates, themselves came out of the city, and let all their enemies who so desired to enter within the walls. But the Persians broke down the hidden bridge and ran into the city. They broke down the bridge that they had made, so that they might keep the oath which they had sworn to the Barsians, namely, that this treaty would hold good for as long as the ground remained as it was, but if they broke the bridge the treaty held good no longer. When they were delivered to her by the Persians, Pharatime took the most guilty of the Barsians, and set them impaled around the top of the wall. The breasts of their women she cut off and planted around the wall in like manner. As for the rest of the Barsians, she told the Persians to take them as their booty, except those who were of the house of Battus and not accessory to the murder. To these she turned over the city. The Persians thus enslaved the rest of the Barsians and went home. When they appeared before the city of Cyrene, the Cyreneans let them pass through their city, so that a certain oracle might be fulfilled. As the army was passing through, Badres, the admiral of the fleet, was for taking the city, but Amasis, the general of the land army, would not consent, saying that he had been sent against Bars and no other Greek city. At last they passed through Cyrene and camped on the hill of Lycaean Zeus. There they regretted not having taken the city, and tried to enter it again, but the Cyreneans would not let them. Then, although no one attacked them, panic seized the Persians, and they fled to a place seven miles distant and camped there, and while they were there, a messenger from Ariandes came to the camp asking them to return. The Persian asked and received from the Cyrenians provisions for their march, after which they left to go to Egypt, but then they fell into the hands of the Libyans, who killed the laggards and stragglers of the army for the sake of their garments and possessions, until at last they came to Egypt. This Persian force advanced as far as Eusphiridae in Libya and no farther. As for the Barsians, whom they had taken for slaves, they carried them from Egypt into banishment, and brought them to the king, and Darius gave them a town of Bactria to live in. They gave this town the name Bars, and it remained an inhabited place in Bactria until my own lifetime. But Pharatime did not end well either, for as soon as she had revenged herself on the Barkians and returned to Egypt, she met an awful death. For while still alive she teemed with maggots, Thus does over-brutal human revenge invite retribution from the gods. That of Pharatime, daughter of Battus, against the Barsians, was revenge of this nature and this brutality. End of Volume 2, Part 8